it's really important that we take a deep breath and acknowledge how professionalized most of these processes have become, how distant they are from the experience of the people that they are purportedly trying to serve. When you actually talk to people and listen to people and give power to people who are trying to meet their basic needs, they approach the issues differently, they use different language, they identify different needs. Welcome to season two of The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. In our first season, we talk with visionaries, designers, and implementers about new models of whole person health. Time and again, the same questions came up. Will this scale? Will this actually work? So for season two, we want to talk about evidence and implementation. Alan Weil is the perfect person to help us grapple with these questions. He is the editor of the leading health policy journal, Health Affairs, but he also previously directed Medicaid in Colorado and led one of the most ambitious health studies at the Urban Institute. In the conversation, Alan talks about how iterative implementation, a focus on customer experience, and strong feedback loops are the keys to improving execution of big new policy initiatives. So please welcome Alan Weil to The Other 80. I'm so excited to have this conversation because your episode will be the beginning of our season two. And we've been focusing on moves broadly, but mostly within Medicaid towards social determinants and whole person care models. I think most of our listeners know what Medicaid is, and they also know it's a state and federal program, but I'm not sure they thought very hard about what it means to be a state and federal program and sort of the grounding of that in our country's origin in federalism. And my question for you is, in that design, how does change happen? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the day-to-day administration of Medicaid is all at the state level. So you have federal oversight, you have federal rules, you have federal funding, but the program is run on the ground at the state level, and of course, then out in communities with providers and all sorts of other actors involved in the program. Most change in Medicaid, therefore, happens at state initiative. A state decides they want to do something. And the first question is, does it fit within what we're allowed to do in Medicaid? I mean, the great thing if you're at the state level, if you're looking at a problem you want to solve, If you can make it a Medicaid problem, you can get 50 to 70% financing from the federal government. If it's a education problem, you're paying for it yourself, right? So Medicaid has this lever to it, which is if it fits in the program, you get a lot of support for it uh, financially. You begin with sort of what are we trying to do? And then asking the question whether that is within the boundaries. Now, there are definitely instances of transformation led by the federal government. The federal government is also very good at sending signals about what it wants. Uh, The waiver authority, people often refer to Medicaid waivers. There are actually a number of different types of them, but let's just loosely group them all together and say that the federal government, because it has pretty broad authority to waive its rules, 
it can say, we're interested in programs that do A, B, or C. And states then know that the likelihood of getting federal approval for doing so is higher, and uh, they're more likely to come up with ideas that fit those. But fundamentally, eligibility changes, covered benefit changes may occur with federal leadership. But how you deliver care, who delivers the care, how the care is organized, those really are decisions made at the state level. I was going back and listening to some of your other podcasts and and looking at your blogs And I think you do a really beautiful job of reminding us of various other historical trends that have occurred within Medicaid, whether that's the move to managed care, the disentangling of TANF and Medicaid, um, the actual institution of Medicaid back, back in the 60s. And we'll talk today a lot about the recent move towards, um, equity and social determinants and whole person care. But is there anything about that history that we should be keeping in mind as we think about this recent shift? Well, first of all, thank you for noting my podcast, A Health Podacy. I Since I'm a guest on your show, I get to pitch my own show, I hope. Exactly. <laughs> I have a lot of fun talking to authors of our papers on A Health Podacy. I think given the topic that we're focused on, What I try to remind people of is that Medicaid is one of the very few tools we have to actually create delivery systems, by which uh, I mean, and I'll I'll tell a story, which I have told a few people just in the last week, even though the story is a few years old. When I was on MACPAC, the Medicaid and CHIP Payment and Access Commission, one of the most memorable uh, sessions is when a number of states came and talked to us about what they're doing to address the opioid crisis. And what I was so struck by as I listened to these folks from a you know real variety of states, and certainly not you know that we often think about the traditional partisan differences. These were states of all kinds of political leadership. That basically we had a problem here, like a huge crisis, and the healthcare system was not prepared to handle it. It, it. Yes, we have inpatient beds. Yes, we have various treatment options for people with opioid use disorder. But if you think about the population and its continuum of needs and how they change, they go up, they go down, people have a relapse, they need something more intensive, they're doing well, they need to step down. The, the health system doesn't really think about people that way. It has pieces here and there that if you're lucky enough to get one of the pieces, you get it. And then when you're no, it's no longer appropriate or you can no longer afford it, you don't get it anymore. And what the most creative states had done is they had figured out how to actually develop continuums of care to meet people where they were and to build then the workforce and the payment models to support them. You could tell a very similar, much, much longer story about moving people from nursing homes into the community. I mean, nursing homes were the default. We paid for those. Oh, we don't want people in nursing homes. Well, who's going to serve them? How? How's it going to get paid for? Who's going to determine what services people are eligible? None of those things existed. So what I try to remind people is that Medicaid actually creates delivery systems. It can. And 
uh, very few other systems do. For years, I worked with the governors, and there's this long, long, long standing from a financial perspective. People would say the federal government should take elders and people with disabilities, and states should take you know, young adults and families, low-income kids. This was something people have saying, been saying for decades. And if you, if you take a purely fiscal approach, you'd say, that's right. The, the, the taxing capacity, the demographic shifts of aging and increased disability, they, they lend themselves to the deep pockets of the federal government. Um, but I got to tell you, I wouldn't want the federal government dealing with delivery systems for an aging population because they don't, they don't know how to do it. They don't have an infrastructure. This isn't about, this isn't a shot at the federal government. This isn't an anti-federal government content. It's just that that's not what they do. They pay bills. They they create financial structures. But really, Medicaid is our, is our system for building delivery systems. And then, of course, it's for the most vulnerable, where often that's exactly what we need to do. So one of those areas of experimentation and change have been waivers like California, and we've talked a lot about CalAIM on this show, where the premise, the underlying, if you simplified the waiver down to like one sentence, it would be if we redirect spending from medical to social care, we have a chance, we have a shot at improving health and at least maintaining spending, if not reducing it. Um, in the budget neutral context. Let's take away all the details around what you do and how you do it. And I want to drill down on that concept for a minute. The first is, what is the evidence for that statement? Well, I would say we have a robust evidence base for the first half of the sentence and essentially no evidence base for the second. In fact, the evidence may point in the opposite direction. So at the micro level, if you look at a group of people and you do some work to identify the needs that they have that are not what we would think of as traditional medical needs, social needs, economic needs that aren't being met, and if you target resources at a fairly specific set of unmet needs, um, we're pretty sure that that can improve people's health. Um, we, we have stronger evidence around things like food and housing, maybe weaker and, and money. I mean, money clearly is probably the first place to, to list. And then it gets, you know, it gets a little weaker as you get into some of the sort of built environment and employment conditions and things like that, although there's still evidence. But it's it's very context specific, right? It's who, it's how well is it targeted? It's what are you really doing? And what are you really expecting from it? Does this save any money? I don't think we really have much evidence for that. Now, there are, again, you know, the Commonwealth Fund has this uh, ROI calculator where you can put in what you're going to do and it draws upon the evidence. And there certainly are places where that can happen. But I think we have to be cautious about the premise that we're doing this because it will save money, uh, partly because there's huge unmet need. And so when you meet people's needs, Part of what you're doing is meeting unmet need. You're not reducing other need. You're just doing something that someone needs. Part of it is that our targeting is not usually so great. So if you take someone who is 
just been evicted or is about to be evicted and you intervene with them, you have a really good chance of catching exactly the right person at the right time to prevent them from having something bad happen to them. But if you take everyone who is unstably housed or who has difficulty paying their bills for their home, their rent, well, that's a whole lot of people. And if you try to help all of them to prevent all of them from running the risk of being evicted, suddenly you're talking about a whole lot more people. Your, your support isn't nearly as well targeted. The costs go way up. And the number of people who benefit from your intervention is great because they're getting help paying for their rent, but you're not actually doing anything for their health. It reminds me a lot of prevention. Everyone wants to pay for prevention and they want prevention to reduce cost. And it turns out that a lot of what prevention does is reduce disease because it's prevention. But a lot of what it doesn't do is reduce cost. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And that's a very much, I think, the way to approach this. So the problem is, of course, from a waiver perspective, from a budgeting perspective, you really want to bank on the savings uh, as well as just do the right thing. But the evidence on that half of the sentence, it's just not quite as good. One of the things I was really struck by when I interviewed Mandy Cohen, who was speaking then as the former Secretary of Health and now as the uh, nominee for CDC, she just said, you know, Claudia, it really all comes down to execution. And I think so often we evaluate the results of policies based on the merits of the policy, not based on whether it was executed well. And that leads me to another set of questions that I've been thinking about, which is, and and this came up particularly in California, but I think it's really relevant across the, the different states. These are ambitious new policies. They are talking about changing the way care is delivered, partnering with hundreds, if not thousands of community organizations, working with jails and prisons. It's just a, a, a very broad scope. And so much of that falls on the health plans in the state of California to implement it. And the concern that's been raised is, is our policy getting ahead of our ability to execute and implement? And so I don't, like, that's kind of an abstract question that's impossible to answer. But I guess my question is, what are the tools that states have to increase their ability to execute and implement? I think the most critical element is the ability to modify as you go. There is a lot of investment that you make before you implement to design, and that's all very valuable. You need strong feedback loops, particularly from enrollees. Yes, you're going to hear from the health system. You're going to hear from the providers and they're going to tell you all the things that they want and they need. They have a channel to the state, but the, the, the community of people most affected in most states has limited channels. Um, and I think one of the biggest differences between effective and ineffective implementation is a, a formal state sanctioned, meaning we want to hear from you, not we're afraid of you, uh, that, and, and, and open, you know, real openness to hearing what is and what isn't working. Then you have to have internal structures that make it possible to make changes along the way. Uh, we tend to be very risk averse in public implementation because one bad story can bring an entire really exciting initiative down. But at the end of the day, the odds you're going to get everything right 
the first time around are exceedingly small. And so the ability to change course along the way, I think is most critical. The United States Digital Service has been leading five different vertical looks at the experience of citizens as they go through different junctures of experience. So one would be retiring, another would be having a child, another would be leaving the military. And the main purpose was to look at how different systems, federal systems intersect to deliver a particular experience. And I think what we in government know is that often all, all good intentions often end up making it super complicated and very disjointed. So it was meant to do that. But also I think they had some really exciting kind of opportunities to interact with the citizens that we're trying to help, right? <laughs> but my when I've observed those kinds of committees in California and other states, often they're the trade associations or others who who say they're speaking on behalf of citizens, but they're they're still very, very far removed from that on the ground experience. Interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. And government runs programs and programs have boundaries. And yeah. people live lives intersecting with multiple programs. And that's where you see whether the different programs are aligning well or poorly. You could take the the long-standing challenges of integrating Medicare and Medicaid, which we still are nowhere near solving. And what is it? It's two exceptionally important programs trying to serve a very vulnerable population. And the worlds of those two programs are so different, they just can't quite line up. I want to move into some conversation about I'm thinking of this as the power and change part of the conversation. Uh, you m have made several really compelling statements that you don't have a lot of optimism that if we put addressing social needs in the hands of the healthcare establishment, that will ex that we should expect much as a result. And the reasons you've stated are, you know, these guys have the power and resources. Why would they give it away? And I want you to just unpack that a little bit. So here we have this emerging strong desire to address equity, address health by addressing social drivers. As you said, there's a good basis of evidence that that's the right direction. We have the resources on the healthcare side, you know, 20% of the GDP. The natural then inclination is to say, okay, healthcare, figure this out. And you're now very logically saying, ah, guys, I don't think that's going to really do much. Just kind of unpack that for us, both in terms of what you see as the issue and what you see as maybe some inklings of solutions to that. Yeah. So you capture my thoughts beautifully. I think you said them better than I do, but I am, I am pessimistic about the ability of the health sector to address the inequities that exist. And I'll sort of tease a few threads and some of them maybe deserve to be pulled and some should just be left uh, as teases. Um, first of all, it is really important that we not think of social determinants and equity as synonymous or the absence of social capital to address health and equity as synonymous. There is no question that given the inequities in our society, that people who have more, more unmet social needs um, are uh, disproportionately people who 
have fewer resources in general. Um, but part of actually the reason I think that the health sector more broadly has gotten into this area is because we're finding that a lot of people who we think of as you know middle class, um, they're struggling too. And so in the in the old days, if you will, it was the public hospital that took care of the poor people, and they had to pay attention to people's social needs, and no one else did. And now it's the suburban community hospital that has people coming in who don't have enough to eat and are unstably housed. And they're like, wow, this is this is not just a poor people's problem. So that's that's issue number one. And second of all, you can't talk about equity without talking about race and without talking about racism. And the vast majority of these interventions are at the individual person level. Someone who's unstably housed, how do we get them housing? Someone who doesn't have enough food, how do we get them food? It's extremely rare for these interventions to ask the question, why is this segment of the population poorly housed or has inadequate food? Why do they live in uh, neighborhoods without access to food? Oh, because there was redlining, which was a, a racist practice. And the even when we eliminated redlining, the the consequences led to depressed housing values in certain areas, which means there's less financial capital. We pay for education with a local uh, property tax tax base in most of the country. And so if housing suppressed, then education resources are suppressed out in most states again, and there's no federal constitutional right to equitable financing for, for education. And so we've, we've under-resourced that. What I'm trying to capture here is that the roots of the inequities are not what health systems are trying to address. They're trying to address the immediate inequities. And although better to address the in immediate inequities than to not address them at all, um, I don't think you're going to get very far. I don't believe that health systems will actually share the resources at the level appropriate to solving these problems uh, that we have in our country voluntarily. I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm going to bring up one example of a potential alternative that you've mentioned, but also open the door to say what might be some solutions. So one alternative that I've, I've heard you discuss is geographically situated new organizations whose purpose is to organize care and resources to improve health. And an example of that would be, to some extent, the disrupts in New York. That was their waiver program in New York. To some extent, the Washington Accountable Communities for Health, which, which created regionally focused entities. Um, and they have the benefit, I think, of being community-based, not healthcare-based. So they can get out of some of the politics, certainly, of that and get out of a little bit of that mindset of like, we're here to save the world, right? Let's just focus on that for a minute. And we don't have to get into all the details of those models, but is that the right track to address some of the underlying issues you're talking about? I think it's great that you brought up DISRIPS, one of my favorite uh, acronyms. So I think it's a perfect microcosm of the problem, which is even when we agree that the dollars would be well spent on something other than traditional healthcare services, 
where the dollars are coming from has a big effect on who feels that they have a claim to organize and make the decisions about where the dollars will go. And so, you know, it's not lost on me that you can have multi-billion dollar health systems make multi-million dollar investments in their communities and have a huge press conference about all the great things they're doing in their community when it's a tenth of a percent of their overall resources. Why? Because it's visible and it's flexible, but they're not reprogramming 5% or 10%. They're reprogramming little tiny slivers of percentages. In my more ideal world, rather than these sort of health based, even if non-traditional enterprises, they would be a little more rooted in the community. But that gets to issues. I mean, this is one of my favorite topics where, again, it's very easy to speak generally and very hard to be specific. And it's the topic of governance, which is, I do think it's different if a, a pot of funds being used to improve the health of a population is governed by a nonprofit health system, a state or a state authority, a county or a local authority or government, or a community based organization. Each of those enterprises will just begin the process differently, which leads me to believe that they will almost certainly end the process differently. So I actually think there's a lot of nuance here about governance. And we don't have a lot of examples in this country of the kind of community governance of resources that I think would be most valuable. In theory, that's kind of what government is. But in practice, we've sort of professionalized government all the way down to the local level, that it's pretty hard to say, oh, yeah, that's the level of where people are coming together, putting their needs out on the table, making some joint decisions about how to meet them. It's hard to find examples of that. You're not offering a silver bullet, but I think what you are offering is the invitation to ask those questions early on in the process of policymaking. Who's going to hold this change? How are we going to make sure that those different perspectives are there? Is there some kind of joint power sharing that's possible? Are there checks and balances? I think those are the right kinds of questions as we go about thinking. And the other example I was going to give is, you know, I ran a large health information network in California. Our peers across the country have really been starting to study our model as a sort of pre-competitive space that is a bit of a public-private partnership where government often has some ability to control and direct, but doesn't have an ability, doesn't have the final say-so. And it's messy, it's complicated. A lot of the funding still comes from public sources in those examples, but the governance isn't the government deciding. So I, I wonder if we need something similar. Yeah, I think uh, I like how you frame this, which is these are the questions to ask at the outset. But also, I think it's really important that we take a deep breath and acknowledge how professionalized most of these processes have become, how distant they are from the experience of the people that they are were purportedly trying to serve or help or whatever language you want to use, that 
when you actually talk to people and listen to people and give power to people who are trying to meet their basic needs, they approach the issues differently. They use different language. They identify different needs. I did a deep dive on the California Endowment's investment of a billion dollars, partly because I recently saw Tony Eiten, who wrote a paper in Health Affairs about this, and partly because I've been looking at some of the Berkeley School of Public Health's desire to create more of a social impact. So for for listeners, um, the California Endowment's a California-based philanthropy. They invested a billion dollars in health improvement in California. And from what I gather, the main conclusion was the right strategy is to invest in in giving more power and voice to communities, and by that meaning individuals as well. And it's sort of of a hard conclusion to read. Like I kind of wanted there to be more around like the strategy for delivering services is better because I think it takes us out of our comfort zone and the expertise-driven model of policy making. But let's say you agree with that. What should Medicaid policymakers do with that insight? (laughs) Well, not only do I agree with it, I mean, you know, as an editor, I love all my papers equally, but that is one of my favorites. And and I, until recently, was a trustee of a foundation here in the Washington, D.C. area that went through a transition of of moving to a community-led board. It's one of the very few foundations that's done it. And I was appointed to the board as sort of a community thought leader and all of this, but I am not... I don't represent what the majority of the board is anymore. And and I mean, I'm not on anymore. But the whole point, again, is that it's it's not just listening. It's it's power. It's authority. It's the and, and that's where I think the California endowment lesson comes in, which is it's a process solution, not a substance solution. And we tend to move to substance solutions. You know, where should we invest? What should we and I will also say that part of the literature, we should we should remember that part of the health literature is that self-efficacy is a source of health. And so empowering communities isn't just they get to make certain decisions and those decisions may be better, but by giving them agency their health actually gets better. Their mental health improves. Their sense of possibility goes up. I mean, these are, and there's evidence for this. So there's just no, there, there's no urgency if you're on the side of power. There's a, yes, we should do better, but there's no urgency. And And if you want urgency, you need people who know that if this isn't fixed Tomorrow, that means they may get sick and not be healed because they don't have insurance or they don't have anywhere to go or they won't be treated with respect. And those are all problems you and I can look at. And I don't mean to speak for you, but I can look at and say, wow, I'd really like to fix that. But but there's never going to be as much urgency among the people who have than there as there is among the people who who don't have. And I think it points to lessons that I know I am still learning, which is, is my role more to enable others to lead versus the excitement of being the source of ideas and change in myself. And those are not easy switches to make. And we still, you know, want to be excited and want to get, you know, feel like we're making a difference in all of that. But I think there's an essential 
shift even in what it means to be a leader in that, in that context. I'm gonna, I can't believe this time is almost up and I'm moving into the wrap up questions, which are two. Uh, one, what's a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? I think the, the, the collection of leadership lessons I've learned the hard way have to do with exactly what we've been talking about, which is being intellectually confident while oblivious to certain realities that are more important than the intellectual side of it. So I'm going to go way back to when I ran the Medicaid agency in Colorado, which is very close to 30 years ago. And Colorado had a strong Medicaid program for people with disabilities. And I came in, I was a you know young guy running the program and met with leaders of the disability community who basically read me the riot act and said, you know, the only people who should be making decisions about us are us. You don't know our lives. You don't know what we need. You sit in your office in Denver and it doesn't matter how smart you are. And at the time I certainly thought I was smart. (laughs) Um, And, you know, they, they, they fundamentally shifted my understanding. Now, what was the hard way? Well, we had some battles and I lost some and that's how it should be. And, and, and that lesson has stuck with me for a long, long time. It, this sense that um, analytic prowess, which I pride myself on, um, is not, not the coin of the realm. The double layer of humbleness I love in that is also bringing that perspective into a job in which analytics is a part of it. So how do you, in that role as editor, bring that full story forward while still delivering what people want and need, which is strong evidence? Um, The final question is, is there a question you wish I'd asked, which I didn't? I'll I'll turn your question to say, I'd like to comment a little on your last comment, which is sort of the question of how do I bring any of this to my current mm. work? Because it is it is easy to, to uh, talk about how other people in the health system should be doing better. Um, I don't run a hospital or an insurance company, but I do, am the editor-in-chief of health affairs. And your comment earlier about sort of what does it mean to lead when you've we're, when you're in a position of privilege, what does it mean to lead? And when is it time to step out of the way and have others lead? And I would say that 2022 was a really exceptionally educational year for us as an organization. Early in the year, we had a, an issue on racism and health. And later in the year, we had an issue on disability and health. And the commonalities and the differences, I think, were it made it great that we did them both in the same year because racism is such a pervasive uh, uh, force in our society with such deep roots and is, of course, visible today and people trying to actively dismantle and figure out what it takes to actively dismantle while there are many others who are in denial of its existence. 
it has such a different tenor, but many of the same things can be said about disability. There is no question that ableism is entrenched in our culture. It's entrenched in our history. It manifests today in the form of huge disparities, inequities, power imbalances. Of course, it is completely different than racism in many respects, but it does share an element of dehumanization of the other, that both of these rest on the sense that people, some someone is less than, someone who is other is less than. And of course, we see that playing out in lots of other isms in our world. Um, so for us to f- think in the maybe limited ways, because we're just a journal, that we could improve what we do to be more open to those who've been excluded on the basis of race. And then six months later, try to figure out how do we open the door to those who may have been excluded uh, on the basis of disability gave us, I think, uh, an opportunity to, to, to see these issues from multiple dimensions. Some of this is around language. Some of this is around just expectations of our authors and people who submit. We assume that they're going to know what we want, and we are going to assume that they know how to navigate our processes. Um, And how do we do exactly what you described, which is think more broadly about the evidence that needs to be brought to bear to these issues while not undermining people's confidence that we are good arbiters of what is evidence-based? that that also required some uh, examination. And then I'll just close with, and who's the voice? Some of the th- elements I'm most proud of, and we have a new fellowship for trainees, um, is just figuring out when to get out of the way. I love doing a podcast with you, but I also love it if other people who wouldn't be asked to be on this podcast can do the same thing and trying to figure out the balance because I'd like to think I have something to say and I'd like to think that there are people who would be receptive to what I say, but I also don't want to always be the voice. In fact, I want to start to try to figure out how to diminish my own. And that's a, that's a, that's a puzzle. It's a conundrum, but it's a, it's a puzzle of privilege. That's where we are. It's a beautiful place to end. And I thank you so much for sharing what I think turned into a probably more philosophical discussion and really a welcome one because I've been grappling with these issues and not quite knowing how to disentangle them. So you helped, I think, do that for me and for our listeners today. So thank you. I'd like to thank Alan for joining me. This interview ended in a place I did not expect, a discussion of governance and power. We don't have a lot of examples of the kind of community governance and execution that will support moving rapidly and equitably to whole person health. So what is the path forward? We need to embed these new models in communities versus in powerful health systems. We need to design around customer experience with true citizen feedback and input. And we need to confer real agency to the people and communities these new programs are designed to help. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information on Alan Weil and health affairs. 
There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theotherady.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <laughs>